and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 4, a podcast that looks at every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer to see why it works so well and very occasionally why it doesn't. Today we'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 13, The Eye in Team where Buffy briefly joins the initiative. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. If you like supernatural thrillers or amateur sleuth novels, you can check out the first in each of my series free at lisalilly.com slash free. As for the Iron Team, in particular, today I'll talk about the very fluid plot turns and the lack of a clear inciting incident or story spark, point of view issues in this episode that raise protagonist questions, but a lot of movement in season-long story arcs or subplots, And we have a special guest who will talk about some of the themes in this episode, including how it relates to Frankenstein, feminism, and the phenomenon of corpse porn. There will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the hellmouth. The Eye in Team was directed by James A. Contner and written by David Fury. The original air date was February 8th, 2000. We start with what should be opening conflict. That's the conflict there to draw the viewer in, and sometimes it relates to the main plot, but it doesn't need to. Willow recites what sounds like a spell about bringing her her heart's desire. As the camera pans back, we see she's holding playing cards. Xander tells her magic is cheating, but Willow claims it wasn't magic. She was praying. As they each take cards, Anya sighs. She doesn't like playing a game with so many rules just to get plastic discs. Xander explains they are chips to represent the money that none of them have, but that will change when his merchandise hits the streets. He's now a local distributor for Boost Bars, a cereal bar or protein bar. Willow declines to try one, saying, those things usually taste kind of tasteless, then with a bad aftertastelessness. Xander comments that he wishes Buffy could have made it tonight, but Willow tells him she's out with Riley, and you know how it is, with a spanking new boyfriend. Anya comments, yes, we've enjoyed spanking. And Xander, who was shuffling the deck of cards, now sends cards spraying all over the place as Willow laughs. Xander thinks Riley's okay, but has a big question mark about the initiative. Willow agrees, but says they seem to fall into the good guy camp and goes on, I mean, they are anti-demon. Anya gives her a look and Willow continues, but probably pro-ex-demon. Anya responds, maybe, I choose to feel threatened. Xander points out there's still a lot they don't know about the commandos. What exactly are they up to? This first scene is unusual for Buffy. There are some really fun lines, but no real conflict here. It feels more like an introduction to the commandos. The commandos are creeping through the woods at night, seeming like they're hunting something. Then suddenly Buffy leaps out. She's the only one not in camouflage. She throws one commando to the side, fights another, 
and uses still another as a shield to avoid being hit with a taser gun. A voice says lights. The headlights of military vehicles go on, illuminating the scene, and Professor Walsh comes out. She tells Buffy it took the patrol team 42 minutes to track her, and she neutralized them in 28 seconds. Buffy says she was just lucky, but Walsh is still impressed. And Buffy says to Riley, I was just being modest with the whole lucky thing. You got that, right? Riley got it. Graham tells her she's awesome, but Forrest, who is holding his side and limping a bit, gives her a sour look. Professor Walsh looks concerned as Riley, with his arms still around Buffy, walks to one of the vehicles. This foreshadows Walsh's later concerns about Buffy and Riley, and possibly concerns about how Buffy can immobilize so many of her commandos so fast. At 3 minutes, 21 seconds in, we go to credits. We return at 4 minutes, 17 seconds. We're at the campus in the cafeteria. Buffy tells Willow in detail how impressed Professor Walsh was. Willow's eyes are glazing over and Buffy apologizes and asks how Willow's night was. Willow answers, like a normal person's, light on the action-packed. So maybe this slow start with the card game was purposeful to juxtapose it with the commando fighting sequence. It still overall feels like a slow start to me. Willow hopes tonight won't be too much of a letdown for Buffy. Buffy gives her a blank look and Willow looks really upset until Buffy assures her she is just kidding. Buffy says, Bronze, the gang, are you kidding? I wouldn't be anywhere else. I miss you guys. Willow is understanding about Buffy being so busy with the commandos and Riley, but in the middle of that, Buffy interrupts to comment on Riley and how good he looks. He has just come into the cafeteria. She does shift her focus back to Willow, but then interrupts her friend again to comment on the unhealthy food choice Riley is making. He's buying a Twinkie for lunch, and I think Twinkies are a fun theme in Buffy. If you remember an Inca mummy girl, Xander stuffed them into his mouth to impress Empata. Buffy says of Riley, oh, he is so going to be punished. Willow comments, everyone's getting spanked but me. Buffy says, what? And Willow says, nothing. Normally by this point, we would see the story spark or inciting incident, the plot moment that gets the main story rolling. And in almost every episode, every book you read, every movie you see, you'll find that around 10% through. Now we're well past 10%. And I can't pinpoint any one thing that gets the main conflict between Walsh and Buffy rolling. Though it could be the moment at 3 minutes 20 seconds in where Buffy and Riley walked off together and Walsh looked after them troubled. Perhaps she was already plotting to get rid of Buffy. But that feels like a stretch to me. We now cut to Giles at 5 minutes 57 seconds in. He enters Spike's crypt. Spike yells at him for not wiping his feet. And Giles comments how rude it was of him to track mud into Spike's dirt. Spike admits his crypt is a fixer-upper. It needs a woman's touch. Maybe Giles would like to help. 
Giles says, while I'd love to keep trading jabs with you, Spike, perhaps I'll come to the point. He goes on that he owes Spike a debt of gratitude for helping when Giles turned into a demon. Spike doesn't care about gratitude. He wants the money. And Giles hands over $300 in cash. As Spike counts it, Giles suggests that given Spike's affliction and his new discovery that he can fight demons, there may be a higher purpose to what happened to Spike. Spike responds, ugh, you made me lose count. He turns to look at Giles. What are you still doing here? And Giles responds, talking to myself, apparently. Spike tells him to piss off. This wraps up their business and he wants nothing more to do with Giles or the Slayerettes. Specifically, he says he doesn't want them calling him, quote, the second teen witch's magic goes all wonky, close quote, or, quote, Xander cuts a new tooth, close quote. So far, we have three running subplots for the episode and more so for the season. Willow's and Buffy's friendship, which is fraying. Xander's struggle to find work and live in the world outside of college. And Spike and the Scooby's relationship, as well as Spike dealing with the chip in his head. Our main plot at this point, though, is not that clear, and neither is who is the protagonist. To figure that out, we look at three things. Who has a goal they are actively pursuing? Who is the main point of view character? And who has the most at stake? So far, it's hard to pick out any one point of view character. We have jumped around and will continue to do that. And we can't really tell any of these other things either. At 8 minutes 10 seconds in, we cut to Buffy and Riley face to face. It looks romantic. He says they don't have to do this, but Buffy says she's ready. Riley turns to a mirrored wall. The camera pans back. He uses his key card and there is a retinal scan and they go down into the initiative. As Buffy looks around, the writers have lots of fun with phallic jokes. One of her comments is, you said it was big. You told me, but you never said it was huge. And Riley answers don't like to brag. Buffy tells him all of it is incredible. She didn't think the initiative was fly by night, but then she jokes asking if they can fly. Do they have jetpacks? Professor Walsh greets Buffy and gives her a pack of reading material. When Buffy jokes about getting homework, Walsh tells her it's classified. She can't take it home and says, when you're through reading those pages, you'll have to eat them. Buffy looks shocked and Riley tells her Walsh was joking. Walsh says, don't worry, it doesn't happen very often. At 10 minutes, 14 seconds in, Walsh gives Buffy the tour, including showing her that giant pit that looks like it's lined in tinfoil where they experiment on demons. And she explains they've made significant progress with behavior modification, so subterrestrials no longer pose a threat. At 10 minutes, 50 seconds in, Buffy says, so I've seen... Walsh and Riley stare at her and she goes on, on the Discovery Channel with gorillas and sharks. They made them real nice. You haven't seen it? What's over there? She points to another part of the initiative, which Walsh says is the armory, and it has the most advanced weapons. Some of them are complicated, but she tells Buffy, you'll pick it up. 
and immediately says, don't pick that up. As Buffy grabs an electronic looking gun, Buffy says, what is it? And Walsh responds, about $20,000. At 11 minutes, 55 seconds in, Walsh shows Buffy a combat communication device that includes a camera and can monitor her heart rate. And I have a note, this is Chekhov's camera monitor from uh, Chekhov's rule that if you show a gun in Act 1, it has to fire by the end of the play. In here, we will find out the camera monitor is very significant. Buffy points to a door and asks what's behind it, but Walsh says it's restricted. She gives Buffy a security card and pager, shakes Buffy's hand, and welcomes her to the team. That was at 12 minutes, 17 seconds in. Right around here, we usually see the first major plot turn. I think of it as the one-quarter twist. Often it happens about 25% through, but sometimes more like a third. The key thing is it should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and raise the stakes. As with our story, Spark, it's a little hard to pick out here. Walsh welcoming Buffy to the initiative is a turn in the story. It doesn't quite come from outside Buffy because she seems to be wanting to join or at least be part of the initiative. It does raise the stakes, but in a way we won't understand until much later. But this does seem to be what sets off the chain of events that leads to Walsh feeling so threatened by Buffy. What makes me question that is some of what happens suggests to me that Walsh might come to see Buffy as a huge threat anyway, but I will get to that later. We now cut to Willow's point of view. She and Tara are in one of the student lounges and Willow is admiring a crystal that Tara handed her. Willow has been looking for one like this. They are very hard to find. Tara thinks it was her grandmother's and she wants Willow to have it. Willow tells her that's really sweet, but she wouldn't feel comfortable accepting a family heirloom. Tara looks down, her shoulders hunch. She's clearly feeling rejected. And Willow adds that she would love to do spells with the crystal sometime with Tara. Tara suggests tonight... Willow awkwardly says she's got plans and then I think makes it worse by saying, it's kind of a specific crowd. You might feel out of place. This feels off to me. I'm not sure why Willow didn't say she's meeting with some old friends from high school. It's sort of a reunion, but she'd love to get together with Tara another time. It could be because she is having feelings about Tara that she can't quite identify yet to herself or that she wants to keep Tara separate, having a part of her life that isn't about Buffy and the Scoobies. I am curious whether uh, any of you feel that way about this line, whether it seems authentic to you, because to me, it feels like a way to give a little false conflict between her and Tara and to set up some themes of the episode. But maybe this is what Willow would say. We cut to Professor Walsh 
she is going into that restricted area and then into the room marked 314. Dr. Engelman, one of the scientists, is there and he warns Walsh that Buffy is an unnecessary risk, but he tells her the project is doing well and has good reflexes. Walsh says, almost time to wake up, Adam, and take your first look at the world. I know you're going to make me proud. We don't see Adam at this point. We just know Walsh is talking to someone or something on a gurney. We cut to the bronze. This part is in Xander's point of view and then Willow's. Anya is unhappy that Xander is not paying enough attention to her. He's just going around trying to sell the boost bars. But he tells Anya if he sells a lot, he can buy her pretty things. And now she fully supports him and tells him to go sell more. Xander says, no, there's none left, and he thinks they should go. Buffy's an hour late. Willow, upset, says they can't leave. She's sure Buffy will be there. So this continues the subplots with Xander trying to sell the boost bars, Willow and Buffy's friendship fraying, and we also added another or addressed another season arc with Willow and Tara. At 15 minutes, 42 seconds in, Buffy enters and Willow says, see, here she comes. Then Riley follows Buffy and some other commando guys enter as well. Buffy apologizes to Willow for the long wait and hopes she doesn't mind Riley and his friends tagging along. Willow says, of course not, and finishes the more the more. Anya drags Xander away to the dance floor. Riley and the guys go get drinks. And when Buffy comments on Anya acting strange, Willow says she has ex-demon issues. Buffy claims she didn't think Willow would mind her bringing the guys. They threw a little impromptu celebration in her honor, and it made it impossible not to invite them. Buffy rolls her eyes at that, but she's clearly excited that they are so impressed with her. Buffy strikes me as more than a little tone deaf here, and I can see why in the podcast Buffering the Vampire Slayer, the hosts often complain about Buffy not being a good friend. I want to say this is out of character for Buffy, and I feel like for the series as a whole, it is, but I do think this has been wound into season four, and maybe the reason I personally don't quite buy it as part of Buffy's character is that I am just disappointed in Buffy. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Willow says it's cool about the celebration, but she thought tonight was just the Scoobies. She would have invited someone herself if she knew it was an open free-for-all. Buffy seems sincere when she apologizes, and then she asks who Willow was going to invite. Now Willow stumbles and says no one in particular, just a hypothetical, and she asks what the guys were celebrating. That's when Buffy explains that she is now in the initiative, at least to the extent that they'll back her up when she patrols, plus boyfriend going to work with her, big extra perk which is quite a change from her uh, views on that in Doomed. Willow, though, is concerned. She points out all the unknowns about the initiative, such as what is their ultimate agenda? Also, what do they plan to do with these neutered vampires and demons? Are they going to get them jobs at Walmart? 
and she reminds Buffy about 314. This is the first time I noticed that it's Willow who reminds Buffy of these questions, and Buffy then goes and asks Professor Walsh. Right now, though, before Buffy can respond, her beeper goes off. So do all the guys' beepers. Riley appears at the table and says, Mother wants us. Buffy turns to Willow and says, Will. And Willow says, I know. Talk later. At 18 minutes, 51 seconds in, we cut to Professor Walsh instructing the commandos and Buffy about capturing, not killing a Polgara demon, and not damaging its arms. Dr. Engelman briefs them on the Polgara's defenses. Buffy stands out in the group because she is female and she's wearing an orange halter top while the rest are guys in camouflage. She is also the only one who asks questions. First, why they can't damage the arms. Engelman says they want to study the demon as much as possible with its natural physiology. When Buffy asks what the Palgara wants, the commandos look at her in surprise. The doctor is at a loss for words and Walsh looks concerned. Buffy explains it's easier to fight an opponent and predict its moves if she knows the motivation. But Engelman thinks the demons are not sentient, just destructive. Walsh adds that they do have keen eyesight, so, quote, you might want to be suited up for this, close quote. Buffy says, oh, you mean the camo and stuff? I thought about it, but, I mean, it's going to look all Private Benjamin. Don't worry, I patrolled in this halter many times. We now cut to Willow's point of view again at 20 minutes, 51 seconds in. Tara opens her door and Willow explains that her social engagement ended when her friend went off to hang with another crowd. Willow continues, irony is kind of ironic that way. Though it's late, Tara is very happy to see Willow and invites her in. So now I am looking for the midpoint commitment or reversal we usually see in a well-structured story. The protagonist throws caution to the wind, goes all in on the quest, or suffers a major reversal or both. At 21 minutes 30 seconds in, which is almost exactly halfway through, we cut to the commandos in the woods. They're hunting for the demon, but Buffy tells Riley she is worried Professor Walsh hates her now and says, questions? An initiative faux pas, yes? Riley agrees it's unusual, but assures her Professor Walsh likes her. We cut to Graham and Forrest, and Forrest is upset because he's always Riley's second in command, and now Riley picked a girl. But he's distracted when they see Spike, or Hostile 17 as they know him. They try to throw a net over him. Spike evades them partly by throwing a bag of groceries at them, and they shoot him with a tracer dart as he runs off. At 23 minutes, 14 seconds in, we cut to Riley, who's trying to hear a team member on a walkie-talkie when the Polgara attacks. Now there is a montage cutting between Buffy and Riley fighting the demon, coordinating very well, and Buffy and Riley in Riley's dorm room kissing and undressing each other. The montage stops as Buffy and Riley subdue the demon. Buffy turns to Riley and says, So, what do you want to do now? Some listener feedback today. Elaine on the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page 
posted a link to an article on Vulcan.com called The Buffy Episode That Changed Everything. It covers the gift, the finale of season five, and looks at how it would have worked if it had been a series finale, and also how Buffy changes from that point on. So thank you so much, Elaine, for sharing that. And I will put a link in the show notes. Also, Raven Dark author made some great comments about Doomed on the YouTube version of the episode. One that I'll share now contains a very minor spoiler about Anya, but it's something that I never noticed. Raven Dark author says, did you notice the shirt Willow is wearing in the scene where she's telling the gang about Percy calling her a nerd? It's a shirt with a bunny on it. I can't make out what it says exactly, but I did see the word bunny. We see later over more than one episode, but particularly in season five, Triangle, how much Willow and Anya don't get along. Anya is afraid of bunnies. I just find it interesting that Willow is wearing a shirt with an image of something that we know frightens Anya. It's like she's wearing Anya repellent, lol. I did not see this, as I mentioned. Next time I rewatch Doomed, I have got to watch for that shirt. I included this here partly because this episode, The Eye in Team, gives us some fun Willow and Anya interaction where Willow is to some extent identifying with Anya's feelings about the initiative. And Raven Dark author's comment makes me think I should look more closely at Willow and Anya, especially when we get to season five. So thank you, Raven Dark author. I really appreciate your insights and those of everyone who comments. Please feel free to let me know your thoughts. You can post them on my website or on YouTube or the Facebook page or Twitter at Lisa M. Lily, hashtag Buffy story. We return to Buffy and Riley making love in his room. This is the first time they've had sex, so I see it as a throwing caution to the wind by Buffy, a sort of major commitment personally, given her history and the concern she expressed in Doomed. It's also a commitment or reversal as to the main plot, We don't know exactly why, but we get a hint of it when there's a shift to a monitor showing a video of Buffy and Riley making love in real time, and Professor Walsh is watching them. That's at 25 minutes, 45 seconds in, and we cut to a commercial. We return to a scene where the point of view is a mix of Giles, Xander, and Anya, who are in his apartment. Giles is not interested in Xander's boost bar, but being the good dad he is, he finally agrees to try maple walnut. One bite prompts him to say, please leave my house. Spike bangs on the door. He's under a blanket and yelling for help. The soldier boys are after him. He's been running in circles to get them off the scent. Apparently, he's been doing that for quite a while because it's now daytime. 
Giles doesn't see how it's their concern. After all, Spike said he wanted nothing more to do with all of them. Spike argues they should help because you're the good guys. You're the bloody freaking cavalry. But Giles asks, why should Giles help Spike? And Spike says, because Spike helped Giles when Giles needed it. And Giles responds, and that was out of the evilness of your heart? Spike says, oh, hell no, I made you pay me. Giles gives him a look and Spike hands over the cash that's left other than what he spent on blood and smokes that he'll never see again. So that's apparently what was in that grocery bag. I love this Spike and Giles exchange, but it highlights the problem for me with the commandos. They just don't seem all that effective. They had a tracking dart on Spike, but apparently for hours they couldn't find him. Now he's standing in Giles' apartment and he'll be there for a while, yet they do not find him. At 28 minutes, 16 seconds in, we cut to Buffy. She wakes up and is so happy to see that Riley is still there in bed. A real first for Buffy, and I remember feeling so happy for her the first time I saw the episode. An alarm starts chirping, and Buffy says to Riley, Your robot bird sounds hungry. The alarm is so he takes his vitamins, and Buffy comments on Riley being quite the regimental soldier. With a smile, he says he is how the government trained him. Buffy doesn't understand why he's not curious about the research the initiative is doing, but Riley says he knows all he needs to know that they're doing good. Buffy then asks what 314 is. Before he can answer, the phone rings. It's Walsh, and he's needed. At 30 minutes, 28 seconds in, we cut to Riley in his military gear. We're in his point of view, and he pauses to look through a small window in the restricted area door. And I have to say, I know we need it for the plot, but why would you have a window in a restricted area door? Anyway, he sees another door inside marked 314. Walsh walks up behind him and says, lose your way, agent? He says, no, ma'am. She tells him she told the team to stop pursuing Hostel 17 until Riley could be in charge. So that partly explains the delay in hunting Spike. She also tells him to make her proud, echoing the comment she made to Adam. We cut to Dr. Engelman working on something on a gurney. Walsh paces and says Buffy is too much of a liability, has too much influence over Riley. She knows the project exists, so they'll have to move to the contingency plan. Engelman says Agent Finn will take it hard. In the background, we see Engelman's been taking parts off the Pulgara to put on Adam, though we don't get a full look at Adam yet. We go to another sort of group point of view scene. Giles is trying to get the dart out of Spike, who's lying on his stomach, and Xander recognizes it's a tracer. Giles says they need to buy some time. We cut to Buffy walking into her dorm room and noticing that both beds haven't been slept in. Willow walks in after her, and Buffy observes that Willow was out all night. Willow says, you too. Buffy apologizes for bailing on them at the bronze, and Willow says don't worry about it, but she doesn't look happy. Before the two can talk more, Buffy's beeper goes off. After Buffy leaves, Giles calls, and Willow is pleased he needs her help, not Buffy's. 
Somewhere around here, we should see the three-quarter turn. That typically grows from the midpoint, is the last major plot turn, and spins the story in yet another new direction. It most likely was the moment Buffy asked about room 314, though at that time we don't know exactly what it is setting in motion. But then Walsh talks about the contingency plan and that definitely spins the story. At 33 minutes 47 seconds in, Walsh explains to Buffy that she has a simple reconnaissance job for her. They are in the initiative. She needs Buffy to check out a level three threat because all the guys are on assignment. It will probably be nothing. Usually level threes turn out to be raccoons. As she's saying that, though, a military guy hands Buffy that pretty serious-looking electronic gun, and Buffy says, wow, you're not crazy about raccoons. Walsh also hands Buffy the fancy camera and communication device so she can get a visual on whatever it is. When Buffy says she still has some questions about the initiative, Walsh reassures her they can have a talk when Buffy is back. Before she leaves, Buffy pauses and asks should she salute. Walsh assures her she doesn't need to. I love this last interaction between them, which highlights the awkwardness of Buffy being in this military organization. We now return to the group point of view. Willow is saying a spell over Spike. Giles explains it will affect the ions in the atmosphere and shield them from the initiative's equipment. As Willow finishes, light bulbs explode around them. One of them asks if it worked, and the camera pans back. We see all their hair is standing straight up. Now we cut to Riley and the guys in their camouflage. The tracking signal is all messed up, but it's leading them to populated areas, so now they're going to go change into civilian clothes. Despite Walsh explaining the delay in going after Hostel 17, throughout this scene and the rest of the episode, it just feels like so much time passes, and it is strange that the initiative can't find Spike. I suppose they're not that worried about it because he has the chip, but then that doesn't fit with Walsh putting Riley in charge. She's obviously doing it for a different reason. Riley doesn't question, so maybe that's purposeful to show that Riley doesn't question any of this, doesn't wonder why this is on the one hand so important, and on the other hand, they could kind of just let this hostel wander around for hours. At 36 minutes, 5 seconds in, we cut to Buffy in the sewer tunnels. A demon enters opposite Buffy. Buffy tells Walsh through the comm that it's not a raccoon, it's a demon, and it has brought a friend, because another demon walks in as well. She has a quick flashback to the demons on the table in the initiative's tinfoil pit. Buffy goes for her weapon, but sparks fly everywhere as it malfunctions. Behind her, a grate shoots down, blocking the opening she just came through, and we cut to a commercial as the demons advance. We're now at or near the climax of the episode in a story that's where the opposing forces have their final clash and the main conflict resolves. As with 
The other plot points, it's a bit unclear here where the climax starts or ends. At 37 minutes, two seconds in, as the weapon sparks on the ground, Buffy fights the demons in hand-to-hand combat. The view switches to the monitor as Professor Walsh watches. It looks from her perspective like the demons prevail and Buffy falls down because the camera tumbles, then becomes still, showing only the ground of the tunnel. At 37 minutes, 53 seconds in, we cut to Riley and his unit, now in civilian clothes, walking through a residential neighborhood. Inside Giles' apartment, the spell is wearing off as Giles removes the tracker. Xander runs to the bathroom to flush it. We cut back to Riley and his team. Now they see the tracker on their monitors again, but they're confused. It seems to be heading right toward them, but they can't see Hostel 17 anywhere. The signal seems to go past them, and Riley notices a sewer grate and realizes the tracer was flushed. While I really enjoy getting Spike back with the Scooby gang, this subplot about Spike and the initiative not only undercuts the initiative's effectiveness, as I mentioned for me, but it muddies the climax here. It doesn't feel that important to be interrupting our climactic scene, though perhaps that's because I know that they don't reach Spike. I I can't remember if on first watch, maybe I felt a lot of tension here that they might burst into Giles' apartment. We now cut back to Buffy and see that she's still fighting. It's just that the camera fell to the ground. I'm not sure if on first watch I thought she was killed or badly hurt. If I did, then those cuts to Riley and his team perhaps heightened that tension and fear. And after all, Buffy did die in season one. So I might have thought that had happened. Buffy now kills one of the demons with its own scythe. The other knocks her to the ground and appears about to kill her. But at 39 minutes, 22 seconds in, she throws that sparking gun at the demon who's standing in a puddle of water and it electrocutes. This is one of quite a few times in the series when I understand the reasoning behind that test the Watcher's Council did back in Helpless, where Buffy was trapped in that mansion with the extremely dangerous vampire and without her slayer strength, because we see over and over that Buffy is resourceful. She can fight using her wits, not only her strength and reflexes. However, the way they did it is still horrible, so I'm not justifying it in any way. This defeat of the demons could be the end of the climax, except that really this is a conflict between Walsh and Buffy. So the climax here kind of slips in between that and the falling action, the part of the story where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. This next scene I see as part of the climax, it's a little odd because it's from Riley's point of view rather than either the protagonists or antagonists. Riley reports to Professor Walsh, concerned about having to tell her that Hostel 17 got away, but Walsh cuts him off. Her back is to the monitors and she tells him two hostels got away, 
Buffy insisted on going after them by herself without backup. And she tells him Buffy is dead, that Walsh did everything she could to stop her. I should have mentioned also when the camera fell, the heart monitor came off of Buffy. So it seemed like her heart went dead as well, which is why Walsh is sure Buffy is dead. As Riley is saying he doesn't understand how this could have happened and he's so distraught, Buffy's face appears on the monitor in the background. As Walsh, with a hand to her face, is saying it's hard not to blame herself, Buffy speaks directly into the camera. She has put on that comm device again and says, the simple recon Walsh sent her on wasn't a raccoon. And Buffy goes on, Turns out it was me, trapped in a sewer with a faulty weapon and two of your pet demons. If you think that's enough to kill me, you really don't know what a slayer is. Trust me when I say you're going to find out. Now we are truly in falling action, tying up the loose ends. Riley and Walsh have been watching, stunned. The screen goes to static. Walsh looks stricken and Riley storms off with Walsh desperately calling after him. We now switch to Giles' apartment. He tells Spike it would be best if he got out of Sunnydale, but Spike says he's not leaving until he gets the commandos to reverse what they did to him. And Xander says, sure, just explain to the nice scientist guys that you really miss killing and torturing innocent people. Spike responds, you think that would work? I love, love, love these lines. They are so in character for both of them. Giles says, as long as the initiative is in operation, it's not safe for you here. Buffy walks in and says, no, it's not safe for any of us. We cut to Walsh talking to Adam, who appears to be unconscious. This is our best look at him. We see he's a mix of human parts, demon parts, and technology. Walsh is clearly upset but trying to stay calm, says if Buffy wants a fight, they'll give her one. All her lines as she monologues toward the end about Buffy also fit herself and what's about to happen. For instance, she says she has no idea who she's dealing with. She goes on about Riley coming around once Buffy is gone and says, and if he doesn't, well, first things first, remove the complication. And when she least expects it, But Walsh doesn't finish because a skewer spears her through her midsection and she screams. Then she turns her head and says, Adam, and falls. Adam was just behind her. Now he is alone in the frame. The skewer's still out and he says, Mommy. And that ends the episode on what I see as both a game changer and a cliffhanger. So a cliffhanger is where you don't resolve your main plot and the audience has to come back for the resolution. A game changer is where the main plot resolves, but something happens that changes the whole landscape. So I think this is more of a game changer. We resolved at least for this episode, the Buffy and Walsh conflict. The reason I say maybe cliffhanger is because as I've been recording, it occurred to me that in some ways, this is a two-part episode with Goodbye, Iowa. So this could be a cliffhanger breaking it into two parts. We'll see when I get to Goodbye, Iowa, whether that structure works. Maybe it explains why the plot points are a little hard to spot here. As far as who the protagonist is, which I raised earlier, 
I think that it has to be Buffy, but that's more because nobody else fits the bill. The problem is Buffy isn't really actively pursuing a goal here. She's excited about the initiative, but even before Willow points out all the questions... Buffy isn't quite in initiative mode. She is not going to just take orders. So it's more like Walsh is actively recruiting Buffy and Buffy is going along. Also, Riley is literally standing to one side when Buffy and Walsh talk. But no one else other than Walsh has an active goal here. As far as the main point of view character... I guess we have to go with Buffy. There are more scenes from her point of view than there are for any other individual character. But if we compare the Buffy point of view scenes to the number of scenes as a whole, there aren't really that many of them. Partly, I think, because we are doing so much to advance subplots here, season subplots, that they almost seem more important or as important as the main plot until we get to the point where Walsh tries to kill Buffy. In some senses, this episode is more of a connective episode uh, for the season rather than a really strong story of its own. Finally, who has the most at stake? Buffy does in the sense that her life is at stake. Walsh tries to kill her. But Buffy's life is always at stake. And she does, on many occasions, face demons and vampires, even without weapons, or is taken by surprise. So while, yes, those are high stakes for her, you could argue Riley has more at stake because his whole belief in the initiative, his training, his career, Professor Walsh, all of that takes a huge hit at the end of this episode. So mostly by process of elimination, Buffy is the protagonist. I will talk more about the subplots in the foreshadowing and spoilers section, but before that, we have comments from special guest Elena Campobasi. Elena and I met through the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page. She also has her own Buffy discussion group on Facebook. And I am really excited to get her input. I'm also excited for a non-Buffy reason. Those of you who are 10 or 20 years younger won't be amazed by this the way I am. But Elena lives in Italy. I'm in the United States. And we messaged each other and then talked via video chat. And I can't help remembering when I was a kid and my mom would yell at us if we made too many calls on the phone to another suburb that was only 10 miles away, but was outside our calling range. So it cost more than long distance within the United States, which was also super expensive. We only made those calls on Sundays during certain hours. And I just feel like my parents' minds would be boggled if they knew that people can connect now so easily from so many parts of the world. So let's hear Elena's thoughts. Hi everyone and welcome to this talk on the Buffy the Vampire Slayers The Iron Team episode from season 4. My name is Elena Campobassi and I'll be keeping you company at the end of some of Lisa's episodes for the next months. I will comment on the Buffy's episodes by dealing with the key issues belonging in the fields of feminism, psychology, literature, 
geopolitics, science and knowledge, language and representations, and philosophy. First of all, I wish to thank Lisa for giving me this great opportunity to contribute to her podcast, for which I'm deeply honoured and grateful. My deep interest in Buffy the Vampire Slayer can be traced back to my teenage years. I am now 30. When I immediately saw something deep and meaningful behind the show, that's when interest turned into passion and when passion turned into an actual personal involvement through which I started to study the show from a socio-political, philosophical and even literary and linguistic perspective. I now lead video conferences and debates on these same topics which are in continuous development. Now let's get started and talk about this great Buffy episode. The first concept we're going to focus on is related to literature and specifically to Buffy as a postmodern Frankenstein. At the beginning of season four, Buffy's fear of not being able to become an adult, manifesting itself through Buffy's problems at school, within the new shifting roles of the Scooby gang, with her family and loving relationships, makes her a social outcast, just like Shelley's monster Frankenstein unable to conform and fit in in society. This is also related with Buffy's choice to start a relationship with Riley Finn, who is completely within the environment that is so hostile to Buffy. He initially adapts well to the patriarchal structures of not just the initiative, but also society as a whole. However, in the Iron Team episode, viewers realise that Buffy may desire structure and regulation, but she's not built for it and shows her innate individuality and inability to conform to patriarchy through not just her personality and attitude, but also her combat techniques and dress code, the latter also being linked with Buffy's defined affirmation of her own femininity, as defined by feminist philosopher Sandra Bartke. When Professor and Initiative Director Maggie Walsh recommends that Buffy suit up in military clothing, Buffy whose shoulders and arms are bare and who's wearing a bright orange blouse, replies, I would look call Private Benjamin. And then again she says, Don't worry, I've patrolled in this altar many times. Unlike Private Benjamin, the young woman has successfully proves herself by assimilating to male military norms in the eponymous 1980 film, Buffy is unwilling to abandon her feminine appearance. Barclay defines three main practices aligned with conventional femininity. Displaying the body as an ornamented surface, producing a body of a certain size, eliciting a specific repertoire of gestures colloquially referred to as sitting like a girl, walking like a girl, throwing like a girl. Now, using these categories, we can analyse how Buffy's being in the world does reflect norms of conventional femininity. Her body is fashionably adorned, slender, and at times moves in a ladylike fashion. But how is Buffy postmodern? While season four clearly takes on Shelley's novel, Buffy offers postmodern solutions to the problems and fears that Shelley saw in romantic ideology. This is linked with the difference between Buffy's and the Initiative's respective systems of knowledge and views on the supernatural, which ultimately causes the failure of their alliance in the Iron Team episode. While Buffy and the Scooby's knowledge 
is specific and contextualized, the initiative's knowledge is based on rationalism. Buffy and the Scooby Gang focus on the motivation, personality and aims of monsters and demons to find their weak spot and defeat them. When talking about the Pulgara demons capturing, Buffy asks the initiative, what do they want? Why are they here? Sacrifices? Treasure? Or did they just get rampage it? The initiative is indifferent to questions that would lend consciousness to the monsters and defines monsters as creatures that are not sentient, just destructive. The initiatives and Buffy's respective systems of knowledge also differ in terms of the philosophical concepts of pluralism, supported by Buffy and the Scoobies, and binarism, supported by the initiative. While pluralists believe reality consists in many kinds of interrelated things, dualists rely on black and white sort of concepts. In the INT episode, the scientist and the superhero Buffy have the following exchange. We thought you were a myth. Well, you were myth taken. And to think that all that time you were sitting in my class. Well, most of those times. Now I understand your energies were directed to the same place as ours, in fact. I always knew you could do better than a B-. It's only our methods that differ. We use the latest in scientific technology and state-of-the-art weaponry, and you, if I understand correctly, poke them with a sharp stick. But is there room for the Slayer within the initiative? Buffy impresses Professor Walsh as she quickly passes a test of her strength and fighting talents, leading Maggie to say, took our patrolling team 42 seconds to track you and you neutralized them in 28 seconds. And Buffy responding, I was just lucky. And Maggie again showing surprise, still very impressive. Next thing we know is Buffy's got a pager and an access code. She's now part of the initiative. While the Scoobies seem sceptical towards Buffy's enrollment, she's enthusiastic and says, it just means that when I patrol, I'll have a heavily armed team backing me up. However, in the end, the methods of Buffy's gang and the initiatives differ too much for them to work together. The initiative's binarism leads to a large bureaucracy with a strict chain of command, whereas Buffy's pluralism is made manifest in a willingness to ask questions, take risks, share ideas and accept into a gang anyone who's courageous and has a serious worth ethic, regardless of whether they're vampires, demons, monsters or humans. The Slayer is real and ultimately rejects dualism and argues for a third new world where anything is the product of the infinite possibilities and scenarios beyond the mental and the physical. This ultimately causes the failure of the Buffy Initiative Alliance and to Buffy saying, it's not safe for any of us. Buffy is using a plural personal pronoun to point to the universality of that concept. Another striking aspect that is dealt with in the Iron Team episode and that is also linked with Shelley's novel Frankenstein is the one regarding the significance of the body and in particular the phenomenon of corpse porn. 
Coined by the sociologist Jake Lynn Fulton, the term corpse porn currently refers to any fetishization of death via gaze. Now, in Shelley's novel, the dead are shielded from becoming corpse porn until Frankenstein is brought to life and described in terms of the creature's beautiful features. Now, Shelley is suggesting a potential for corpse porn. In the Buffy's episode, The Iron Team, the object is restricted to the living body through the representation of the dead body via Adam. In this episode, Adam only appears from the shoulders up, restricting the viewer's field of view to what is complete. His face is all we can see, and is made of human and demon flesh put together. However, the viewer is also able to see Adam's construction. The Polgara demon's arms, retrieved by Buffy and Riley under Professor Walsh's directions, happen to be the only part of Adam's body the viewer sees in this episode. Also, the Polgara demon's capturing by Buffy and Riley is alternated with the scene of them sleeping together for the first time. Later, we see Maggie Walsh watching them both as they fight and as they have sex. Both scenes occur, more importantly, at a vital moment in Adam's creation. On the one hand, by monitoring Buffy and Riley, both as they fight and as they have sex, Dr. Walsh is uniting death and sex in her surveillance. On the other, both scenes are strictly linked with a pivotal moment in Adam's creation, for which the capturing of the Pogara demon's arm is of vital importance. Both factors provide the basis for the phenomenon of corpse spawn in the Iron Team episode, as Adam's creation is paired with Riley and Buffy's sex scene, and sex is thus paired with the abject. Now, the way the Pogara demon is acquired leads to another important concept and to the analysis of the very last scene of the Iron Team episode, Adam's spear and Dr. Walsh's death. Now, this scene is filled with important psychological references related to Adam's main weapon and how he uses it. Despite the technologically advanced tools at Adam's disposal, he only effectively uses a spear coming out of his arm with which he impales his creator, Maggie Walsh, before calling her mummy. This scene is pivotal in terms of the psychological value of its main metaphors. The phallic device Adam uses to murder what he considers as a maternal figure clearly implies an act of matricide, together with an act of copulation, thus potentially implying a parental link that, in a way, seems to be present all the way throughout Adam's life. As viewers, we may ask ourselves what the real meaning, purpose and consequences are after Professor Walsh's death. As Adam physically kills Maggie, we may wonder what either meaning lies behind such intimate first encounter between the scientist and the creation, and what kind of emotional, physical and psychological links between them can be traced. What we have seen today is obviously not enough to analyse the complex structure and relevance of the Iron Team episode. However, it's a start. And I'm sure it's something that we'll continue doing together 
as we interpret the multi-layered and fascinating legacy of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Whether we look at the show's literary, sociopolitical, philosophical or linguistic references, I'm sure we'll never get tired of understanding Whedon's masterpiece. Thank you all for listening and I really hope that you will again. Let's lay it. Thank you so much to Elena and to all of you for listening. I hope you will stick around for spoilers and foreshadowing. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. Willow and Buffy in the dorm room right before Buffy's beeper goes off. So much of what doesn't happen there moves the season subplot about their friendship. Buffy looks so happy and it's the first time she and Riley made love and you can tell she wants to tell Willow but she doesn't because of the beeper calling her away also because of the tension between her and Willow over Buffy's absorption in the initiative and with Riley. Buffy has to apologize first and she should but she doesn't get to sharing her news with Willow. And Willow doesn't tell Buffy she spent the night at Tara's. Now, Willow may have done that before. We've certainly had hints, but this seemed to be a pivotal evening for the two of them. But Willow doesn't share for the same reasons that Buffy doesn't. And this will come back to haunt the Scoobies later. Riley's comment I never noticed before when he says he is how the government trained him. And we also have the robot bird reminder about his vitamins, which on first watch and probably the next five watches, I just thought was cute. But when we realize that Riley also has a chip, that he has been behaviorally conditioned to some extent, much like what's done to Spike, and that... Those vitamins include some sort of super strength serum. All of those things make this connection between him and Adam foreshadow all his problems with the initiative and the way they are using and manipulating him. So, so much there in the fun robot bird discussion. Anya's feelings about the initiative and Willow recognizing that they are anti-demon, probably pro-ex-demon, foreshadows the future conflict between Buffy and Riley as he struggles with Buffy having current dealings with Spike, having a past where she was in love with a vampire, and even when he reacts with such shock when he learns that Oz was a werewolf. Buffy's slip that she's heard about behavior modification of hostels nicely sets up Riley's suspicions when he comes to Giles' apartment in the next episode and recognizes Hostel 17 sitting there. It feeds right into his withdrawal-induced paranoia and even without the lack of the drugs could understandably raise some questions for him. Buffy's line to Walsh about believe me you're going to find out what a slayer is definite foreshadowing there of Riley thinking that Buffy's the one who killed Walsh or at least worrying about it. Forrest is the one I think who raises it. It feels off to me. It doesn't 
feel like something Buffy would really say because I don't buy that she would threaten Walsh as angry as she is and shocked as she is. Maybe she would, but it it really felt like it was there so that we could justify Riley's suspicions in the next episode. But that's another one I would love to hear. Maybe other people found that very believable that Buffy would issue that veiled threat. So that is it for this episode. And remember, the podcast releases every two weeks. I hope you will come back Monday, June 21 for Goodbye Iowa, where Buffy and Riley deal with the fallout of Maggie's death. You can find my fiction and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com. You can also listen to the podcast episodes on YouTube. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved.